0: What is going on guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. If you are new to the show, this is the one-stop shop for all things training, nutrition, and personal growth. I look at this show as a Uh, almost like a coach in your headphones, a coach in your speakers while you're driving. My goal is to provide as much free value as possible in order for you to grow in every way, shape, or form. We primarily do this through training and nutrition because that is my profession, but we do not stop at that as we dive heavily into personal growth, mindset, spirituality, and many other things that are gonna help you, the listener, have a better life. If you are new to the show and you want to listen to some of the best rated episodes from me, you can check out the four episodes listed in the description. One is going to be about my personal story into all of this. One is going to be a nutrition FAQ. The other is a training FAQ. And last but not least is nutritional periodization, which is something I am very well known for in my profession. Today's episode is with my good friend, Josh Cuthbert. Josh is a trainer to some of the highest level athletes. I'm talking professional golfers, baseball players, football players in the NFL, collegiate sport athletes, UFC fighters, you name it, he probably trains them. The dude is a genius when it comes to training monstrous athletes, and I'm super excited to have him on the podcast to talk all things training. We dive heavily into sport specific training, but we do not stop there because everything we talk about can be branched into the general population as well. So if you want better results, you coach people to get better results, or You simply want to learn more about training, you should be listening to this show, and this one is going to give you so much value in order to do that. Remember, guys, if you love this show, if you love this episode, if you enjoy listening to the information I'm providing, please do me two big favors. First, go leave a five-star rating and review because that really does help us grow the podcast, create more free content for you, and help more people around the world. Next, share this with a friend. I don't care if you text it, you email it, you call them and tell them to listen. Any way you can share this podcast is greatly appreciated and motivates me to do more of these for you. But one of the best ways to do it is to simply take a screenshot of this episode, post it on your story, and tag me, at Cody Boom Boom, on Instagram. And you can tag Josh Cuthbert as well, Cuthbert Training. I'm gonna put both of our handles in the show notes in the description below. Uh, Once again, this is greatly appreciated, guys. Now, without any further ado, Let's get on to this amazing episode with my good friend, Josh. All right, Josh Cuthbert, man. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I feel like you're somebody who needs to be more well-known, man. Um, Jason has talked you up to me. We've had a few conversations about you. He connected us, and I'm excited to dive into all things um, sports-specific training and just training in general, man. So why don't we give the listeners, like, in a nutshell, like, who is Joshua Cuthbert? Like, what is your story? Fill the listeners in on what you do, so on and so forth. So I think I took a pretty traditional role,
1: you know, former college football player, did some strength and conditioning internships at Cal Berkeley, Ole Miss, Louisiana Tech. Then I kind of found my way into the private sector, Um, had my fair share of injuries in college, kind of prevented me from any NFL aspirations. And I I found what I thought was a niche in the uh, almost like a reconditioning model between when you get out of rehab into when you get back to the field having torn my ACL, you know, three times now, I kind of gravitated towards injured athletes. And as that kind of came about, I decided, okay, well, now I got these athletes back to where they were before. Now let's get them to a higher level so that they avoid that injury all over again. Um, Worked with some bigger name athletes. I've worked with orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists. It's kind of what I do here in Nashville, Tennessee. Now I have some partnerships and some contracts with different doctors and different pts in the area and whenever they think that they're on the back end of physical therapy they send them to me and then we'll start that reconditioning phase and then i'll go ahead and take them as you know personal training or strength conditioning clients after that
0: what do you this is actually a perfect time for this man i just had my second meniscus surgery on my okay. left knee and i literally like last week, I think was the first week that it was like, all right, like, let's start doing a little bit of things again. Um, basic stuff. I mean, some like blood flow restriction squats, body weight, like very simple shit. But, um, what is like the biggest mistake you see in this reconditioning phase? Like when people are going from injured to trying to get back to things?
1: I think a lot of what we see is zero to 100. So within, especially within all sports, the ability to control yourself on the way down to negatively accelerate. So the eccentric phase is often more times than not, neglected in rehab and in training. So it's something that I really try to concentrate on is single leg movements, force absorption, before we jump right into force production. People are so excited about, oh, I got to get my squat back up, but yet they can't load themselves on the way down with appropriate load. So once you can get that up and running, then you can actually start moving some weight again. But until you can actually control your body through a negative motion on one leg, there's no way that that limb that you just had surgery on Is ready to start producing force again.
0: So, what are some examples of that? Are you thinking like pistol squat, like bodyweight? Yeah, you know, to a box.
1: Yeah, so you know, for you, maybe you're a TRX assisted, you know, single leg squat to a box, or you know, maybe to a high step, whatever it is. And then you'll eventually progress into maybe like a skater squat or a lateral lunge, whatever it is that you know, depending on what range you are within your rehab process or your your training level previously, because you'll have You know, if you're a big offensive lineman and you just had knee surgery, if it's just a scope, you're probably not dropping down into a a skater squat, even on your healthy side. You're 300 plus pounds. It's just not what you're going to be able to do. But you might be able to do a single leg squat to a box, you know, under two or three second eccentric on the way down. And that's probably
0: appropriate load for them. Is it pretty hard to slow these athletes down? Like you mentioned zero to 100. I can imagine they want to like (laughs) go right into it.
1: It is, and you know that's a it's a little bit of a loaded question because um, I actually had this conversation with a colleague recently. You have nowadays, especially you'll have two different types of athletes. You have the guys, some of the ones that I train, that they'll come to me, and normally the way I get clients is you know I have one athlete, and then his friend jumps in, and one of the first things that you hear is you know I don't ever train this hard anymore. So those are the guys that you know, you sometimes have to ramp it up a little bit because they've been used to this professional lifestyle and not training the way that they did in college. But the fundamentals that got them to this world-class athlete that they are is what keeps them the world-class athlete that they've always been. Now you got these, there's others that come from, you know, some blue collar type universities and they just want to run and gun. Like they know hard work, they know that's what they're doing and they want to get there immediately. And those are the ones where you actually have to pump the brakes on them a little bit. You know, you have to explain the process, get them to trust the process, and then all is good from there.
0: I love it, dude. I'm all, I, I'm starting to like pick apart all these things I want to ask you now. But before we kind of dive into these specific questions, um, let's backtrack a little bit more into your background. Um, yeah. Why train athletes? Like, where did that urge to go down that route start? And the reason I ask that is because there is a lot of coaches and trainers listening to this. And I remember being uh-huh. in college and. So I played soccer and then I had a knee injury, had surgery, and then I got into training because of that. And I remember being like, I'm just going to train soccer players. And then I struggled to find any soccer players that could afford to work with me. And then like, I couldn't make any money. And so I started training general pop. And then I fell in love with helping people lose fat and stuff. But I see these people kind of have this struggle point um, all along. So I'm curious about your background of like, first of all, why? And then how did you keep going that route? What made you stick with it?
1: Well, uh, within training if you want to be successful, right, you you have to have the proper demographics to continue to be successful. And I don't train just athletes, you know, my athlete based clients is what drives the rest of my business. Mm-hmm. Um, being a former athlete, when it comes to training athletes, in a personal training setting, you have to be able to relate with your clients in any type, whether it's general pop, you know, older population, children, athletes, I'm able to relate with athletes on a certain level because i've been there i've seen the grind i know the stress i know those type of things and i was able to exploit that a little bit now you know training an athlete a football player isn't that much different than another sport but if you throw me you know lebron james me and lebron we may not match the same way that me and eric decker did or george kittle you know just depending on who the athlete is kind of works better within my uh Personality and just my
0: overall mentality. So it's definitely a, a rooted background of you just playing athletics. Obviously, it,
1: it is. Um, you know, if I were, and it's not this way for every coach. There's a lot of strength coaches out there. You know, Ben Bruno for one. I don't. I don't think Ben Bruno was a you know all American halfback, but he trained some of the better athletes in the country. Somehow, some way, he's able to relate to these individuals, and he's able to get their trust. And within that trust, he implements the same simple principles that most of the good strength coaches that don't try to be cute implement within their protocols.
0: Yeah. I love that, man. What are some, uh, I would love for you to just name drop, man, like shameless plugs, like who have you worked with and, and uh, let's go through all the the roster.
1: Yeah. So, um, one of one of my bigger, and you know, everybody's kind of got their make or break moment, right. Especially when it comes to athletes. Um, I was fortunate to work with Eric and Jesse Decker Um, I was featured on, they had a show on E, uh, Eric and Jesse show. I didn't realize it was such a big deal until I had, you know, 200 Facebook messages the day that it was aired. Like, Hey, I just saw you on this show. And I was embarrassed for some of the guys that I went to high school with that told me they saw me on the, on the E show. Um, (laughs) so that was big. And I was already working with athletes before that, mostly college, some professional, you know, not as name dropping as him. But then from there worked with Michael or some one of my favorite couples that I worked with. Some was uh, Sean Johnson and Andrew East. Great people live here in Nashville, friends of mine, um, work with Luke. That's kind of how this, I think this whole thing started here. Luke's here in Nashville. Luke introduced me to Jason, Jason to you, um, baseball, Pedro Alvarez, Julio Bourbon. And then one of the only basketball players I've worked with is, uh, Robert Covington. He was most recently with the Sixers.
0: Love it, man. I- I- one thing that stands out to me is like that's a very diverse uh, population, right? Like so many different sports. And one question I've heard over the years that I think have kind of gone back and forth, and again, I'm no like sports-specific expert on this, but just from what I've seen, there's kind of like two – not necessarily two camps, but there's kind of the people that are like, you know what, like strength is strength. Uh, Uh Uh-huh force production is force production. I don't care what sport you play. Um, you just got to build strength power. Right. And then there's other people that are like, no, it's very specific. You have to almost like mimic the movements. And there are people that almost like create exercises to try to mimic what these athletes are doing. Um, so I'm curious, man, how, how, what differs and how much does it differ between the sports? So I'm, I'm definitely, uh, example, a, yeah. Um, you know, fast
1: is fast and strong is strong. Now there's different demands for each sport, whether it's within the transverse plane or the frontal plane. But one thing that I talked about from the rehab standpoint that you look at most every sport is the ability to produce force from one lower body limb to the other, whether it's a pitcher on his pitch, a hitter, you know, hitting a home run you know, a wide receiver change in direction. It all kind of boils down to that single leg ability to change direction. So within that, I do probably at least 50% single work. And it's not, it's not, this is going to be an accessory lift to my compound lift bilateral that I do at the beginning. We're going to load up that single leg. We're going to make this shit hard. And you're going to be able to tell when we're done that when you go to stick that foot into the ground or you go to drive off that mound, you have power from that limb every time. And I think it goes for most sports, right? Like when Luke goes to punch somebody, he's driving into a triple extension through somebody's chest. Or Brent Snedeker, when he's swinging the golf club, he's still transferring force from his back limb to his front uh, with a little bit more transverse, him and Luke, than some of these other sports. But a lot of it is within 80 to 90%, I think, of the same training principles.
0: I love that, man. I think that, unilateral work in general is underrated honestly in every avenue um, but something that i've seen uh i don't know if you're familiar i assume you have, or you are just because of the industry you're in but uh, Joe franco and, and yeah i always say his last name wrong cam uh, jose or jose um uh-huh. but they've been doing a lot of like super heavy lunges and a lot of like i mean some of those dudes are doing over 300 pound lunges and shit like that um, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people can be shocked by, but I think it's so smart. Is that kind of how you approach it too? Is like you're treating it like a compound? It is.
1: Um, so Bob Stroop uh, works out of the Dallas, Texas area, works with Patrick Mahomes and a ton of NFL athletes. I believe one of his measurements of strength, and I think he uses a six or eight inch step, is at least two times body weight. Maybe it's 2.5 times body weight on a step up. And he does it with offensive alignment. So he'll have these cats – step, you know, doing a small step up with 600 pounds. Um, and he's one of the greatest in the industry, but, uh, I, I maybe don't go that extreme. Um, maybe a little bit more on the Bulgarian side. I'll load, I'll load that up a little bit heavier than the traditional guy, but yeah, it's definitely something that I treat as heavy as possible. as
0: tolerable. How, how do you transfer that to the upper body or do you even worry about it with the upper body?
1: Um, not as much, but I do. Uh, it's not, we're not just going to do you know, pull-ups then do dumbbell rows for 15. A lot of what I do on the upper body has a little bit more of an eccentric component. So I'll load up the chest-supported rows a little bit more than the traditional person would. And or I implement a lot of banded resistance on a lot of upper body lifts just to help them get a little bit more through a sticking point, um, depending on training phase too, right? So if we're If we're in the off season and we're in the midst of more of a hypertrophy phase, I do pride myself on having good scapular control, making sure everything's moving properly, but we're going to load it up heavy and we're going to put some volume into the training.
0: I love that dude. With injury prevention now, like we've, we've kind of taken a client through, let's say you've got them after PT, they've done the, um, uh, I, I believe you, did you call it reactivation phase? yep well reconditioning phase reconditioning phase sorry um and now you're starting to get them training again and we're trying to prevent injuries while still building strength and stuff like i have two questions for you on that um number one do you find that the unilateral stuff helps quite a bit avoid injuries going forward and if so why and then the other piece of that is um, posterior to anterior chain like are you focused on any specific ratio with that inside of your program design
1: i am so on that posterior anterior chain i'm pretty typical two to one, even, even on the hamstrings to quads. Um, you always hear people talk about pulling upper body pulling at least two to one for shoulder girdle health, all that stuff. But I like to work the hamstrings and the glutes at least two to one on the quads. A lot of that kind of stems to the, the ability of the hamstrings to help protect the knee, especially the ACL from that tibial shift. Um, and then the unilateral stuff. Yeah, absolutely. If you can, if you can handle significant load from, a unilateral standpoint on the lower body, that's going to help you in all aspects of injury prevention. If you can slow down, like if you're doing whatever it is, maybe a bound to a single leg land, that's going to help you avoid that non-contact ACL injury. And I say avoid because there's no, there's no prevention. Injury prevention is, it's just not, it's non-existent. Like stuff happens to different people. Their anatomy makeup is a little bit different. People are predisposed a little bit more, but the more that we can, implement these demands to a certain level on athletes in the off season helps them overcome that said demand during the season right
0: yeah what is there like i want to hammer home the posterior to anterior because i think everybody can benefit from that and i think it's Mm -hmm. something it's getting more popular thankfully but like you said it's very uh pull is twice as much as you push but nobody ever talks about working the Or the hamstrings and glutes more than the quads, and it's something I do even with general population, just because I feel like Mm -hmm. it's gonna just create more strength and power. And again, like you said, I understand the injury prevention side, but just keeping your joints healthy. Um, What other benefits do you see inside of that? Like, why else are you doing that?
1: For most, uh, I mean, even from from an athlete standpoint, the hamstring yes, so the hamstring, the glute is extremely beneficial for just overall speed. The quad is important, right? But you generate more force through that drive phase with glute power, and you're jumping through glute power, then you do the quad anyways. I mean, the quad, it's important, you know, it's important for a lot of different aspects, but the lower body posterior chain, i like to use this analogy. You show me a man or a woman, you know, with a well-defined, with a nice ass, and I'm gonna show you a pretty good athlete, nine times out of 10. Yeah
0: hundred percent agree. And if you look at, if you look at athletes, even men, like if you look at athletes, I mean, in, in almost any sport clothes are not baggy, um, I mean, the yeah. massive hamstrings and glutes, mm-hmm. 100% and pretty much across the board. How much of this transfers to general population for you? Like you said, you do work with some general population. I'm assuming they're more advanced than not just because of the type of training you are, but I'm just curious, like how much of these philosophies apply to both athletes and gen pop? So I think uh, that's kind of what I pride myself and I think that's how I've become
1: pretty successful in this uh, in Nashville. We got a lot of competition here, but competition breeds success is I try to train as many of my people as I can in an athlete like setting. So if I have, even if it's a, you know, 50 year old woman that, and I break things up into different uh, training categories based on their training age and everything, but If they've done some sort of athletic movement in their day, we're going to do some sort of triple extension, some sort of power movements, so that they don't lose those fibers, you know, as they age. If you don't use it, you lose it, right? So maybe we're not doing barbell snatches, right? But we may do a dumbbell high pull, maybe even work into a dumbbell muscle snatch, depending on the population.
0: I think that's huge too from a, a nervous system standpoint. Like I remember in school talking about um I mean the the amount of elderly individuals who die from falling is yeah actually pretty shocking and part of the reason is why their reaction time is so slow and that's a nervous system skill. So like doing the mm-hmm. stuff you're talking about is going to improve that as well. Absolutely. And one of the,
1: you know, huge one of the biggest components of balance is just overall strength. You know, if you it 's one thing to stand on one leg, but if you can 't get up off the couch without using your hands i 'm not going to spend thirty minutes in my training session making you stand on one leg and you know touch a cone we 're yeah. wasting both we're wasting, both of us are wasting our times at that point yeah um, strength it, for me you know most populations is the biggest component to success
0: yeah I hundred percent agree i 'm curious about mobility in these settings, not necessarily general population but athletes like how far do you go with mobility and warming up? And, and there's some people who, and I think this kind of, it's individual. Some people don't need much and some people need a mm-hmm. ton. Some people hate doing it. Some people love doing it. Um, where do you stand with that? And how do you decide like how much mobility somebody actually needs?
1: Um, more activation, pre-activation than mobility, but it's, it's 100% of the time. If you're late to a session, which, you know, don't be late, we're not missing the warm-up, we're not missing our activation just because you you want to get in and hit, hit your heavy bench for us that day. Every single day, we do our upper body, um, our shoulder warm-up. We do our lower body. We go through typically a little bit of not a uh, kettlebell flow, but something that can open up the hips a little bit, whether it's hurdles or whatever. And that's 100% of the time. You know, that's something that, especially with these high-end athletes, and I think they they enjoy it too now that it helps them feel better at the end of the day, knowing that they got that done because they know that that helps their longevity. You know, I like to use the analogy. Most of these guys are sports cars with moderate to higher mileage on it. I'm not trying to put more miles on that sports car. It becomes less valuable at that point. I'm just trying to change the oil and make sure it's running efficiently.
0: Mm. I like that. I'm actually glad you went that route too, because um, funny thing is I'm, and I work with my demographic, just so you know, it's definitely more general population, but more physique oriented. Like we do a lot of aesthetic based stuff, but something I'm like a stickler for with my clients is activation phases. Like I'm really big on kind of sequencing the exercises throughout each session um Mm -hmm. like the activation is mandatory Um, and i'm curious of how you set those up depending on lower body versus upper body Um, do you do full body sessions can you kind of run me through the process of what activation looks like for what lifts and then also like what kind of programming do you prefer with most of your people full body upper lower how do you sequence that is sequencing even important Um, i'm assuming there's a big demand on the posterior chain inside of the activation phase but I kind of want you to just run through how you do things as, in as much detail as you can. Um, so depending
1: on, you know, off season is pretty much what we're talking about here. I, I'm not a strength coach for these teams. So I don't work with these athletes during the season, but most of my athletes I have four days a week. Um, we will typically start upper lower split. Um, and we may, we may run that way the whole, the whole time through, uh, depending on what they uh, their running, their conditioning schedule looks like their agility, but a lot of mini band work, whether it's monster walks, sidesteps, all that stuff. But I also like them to, if we're going to be hinging, which we do at least twice a week, anyways, we're going to work the hinge into the warm up: single leg RDLs, some single leg bridges, you know, maybe even some jumps. Always some med ball work to kind of get that that central nervous system flowing. Mm-hmm. And then from the upper body, I'm pretty standard with your external rotation. I work in some side plank external rotation to make sure that the core is activated along with the shoulder girdle. Um, and then just movement stuff, right? So you do all this activation stuff, but if you don't move the joints afterwards, if you're not squatting through a range of motion, if you're not moving the shoulder through a range of motion, then all you're doing is activating the muscle. And then it's just kind of sitting there before it actually gets moving. Right. So, um, angels, Y's, T's, all that stuff on the shoulder. I do a lot of, uh, well, hang. On, I'm losing the word here um, like prone angels on a, on a bench for these guys. You'd be amazed at how many NFL stars can't really put their hands behind their back. So that's something that we make sure that we always do. Um, and then I'll always try to work in a little, I have a hyper ice hyper uh, I'll work that in there a little bit too, during, especially during the passive stuff that we do with the movement, just to increase a little bit of blood flow.
0: Got it. So, we're almost looking at removing mobility and focusing on like muscular contractions through an active range of motion.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, now we, the most mobility I'll do is still, you know, a little bit more dynamic, whether it's hurdles, things of that nature, which you're still working full mobility. Um, 90 90 hips is something that we do a ton of, but that's not a ton of, you know, ankle banded distraction. I don't do a ton of it because if my guide, if his, You know, if his ankle, if his knee's not going three inches out over his foot and he can't put his ass, you know, ass to grass on a squat, it doesn't really concern me a whole lot. If he feels like he needs a little bit better ankle mobility, then yeah, we'll work it in. But it's not you get an hour and a half with these guys. An hour or you know, 30 minutes of it isn't gonna be spent on banded mobility, you know, supple leopard type stuff. Mm -hmm. I have that in the arsenal for the people that need it, but it's not some it's not the primary focus of the training. How do you determine if somebody needs that versus strength? A lot of that comes within just the movement screen and watching them lift. Um, one of the bigger things that we see, especially in football players, is thoracic, you know, lack of thoracic extension. So yeah. if we're front squatting, you'll see that, that upper back go into a round with a good bit of them. So then, you know, we'll slow it down a little bit and I'll work in, I'll work in some open books, some the Campbell's in between sets to keep reinforcing that extension. Because that extension, People don't think about it in this way, but if you're, if you're a receiver and you're reaching up for a ball and you can't extend through your thoracic spine, that's the difference between an inch and a touchdown, right? Um, So little things like that matter, even though in the middle of a lift is primarily when I work in a lot of this mobility, they don't necessarily, they're like, oh, you know, we need to, we need to be lifting and you got to slow it down, trust the
0: process and all things good come from trust in the process. Absolutely. I guess the reason I was asking too, and I love that analogy, because I think that kind of really hits home for people, but is how to determine when mobility is so needed that you actually have to not sacrifice strength, but like, okay, we're, we have to wait. Like strength training has to wait because you need mobility that bad.
1: Yeah, um, and, and I get that. We have some, I'll get some athletes that, they just absolutely we're not overhead pressing until we improve our overhead mobility. Now there's some that that's where it gets a little bit difficult, right? If you have two or three athletes, um, same position, same size, same general strength, taking athlete A and being like, hey, we're gonna do this instead over here. We're gonna do these open books. We're gonna do this movement within our you know maybe our floor press while athlete B is over here push pressing. You might do med ball uh, push press because you can't get your you can't get the barbell overhead. And then eventually three, four, maybe it might be five weeks before he can join back in with that group. But you find out pretty early on and there may be, you may even get a little bit of pain associated with it. If you don't have the shoulder mobility and you're trying to do overhead movement, you'll know very early on and then bam, it's, you're, you're out. We gotta, we gotta fix this now.
0: Yeah. How often do you, or if at all, uh, incorporate like breathing drills, PRI, stuff like that? That's normally something that I do towards the end of the workout um, or actually at the end of the workout. Kind of down regulate uh,
1: yeah so that's kind of our cool down we make sure that we get that in I'm not we're gonna do 30 minutes of abs at the end of the workout but if i didn't feel like we got sufficient work during we'll incorporate a little bit more transverse abdominus work and then we'll make sure that we worry about that breathing because i'm i took a course a couple years ago rpr which was by Caldeets out of minnesota and um, i use it more myself i think than i do with my athletes but i do i do believe that the ability to breathe properly is a huge component for not only recovery, but your activation, your blood flow, and your overall performance. If you're not breathing properly, if you're not recovering properly in between plays, in between sets, then you start messing with different energy systems when maybe you shouldn't be tapping into an anaerobic system at this point. But because you can't breathe properly, because you're breathing through your your neck and your chest, then now you're, you're actually slowing yourself down.
0: Yeah. I uh, I did a – I don't know if it was a course or a workshop or what it was, but um, if you're familiar with Mike Robertson, but he came up to Seattle and we did like a whole weekend on, on breathing. Um, and then I want to say it was Dr. Mark Chang. that I went through some stuff with he's really into, I mean just different positions to put your body in and go through breathing and stuff like that. And it definitely taught me a lot about the nervous system, opening up joints, things like that when you, how you can do that. And I started noticing more people like you more and more athletes and coaches who work with professional athletes, like adding it into the cool down. Um, Mm -hmm. and I started doing it and it helped me a lot. I work with a WWE guy and we do it and his recovery has gone through the roof since we started implementing some of the exact stuff you're talking about activation, not necessarily less volume, but controlling volume in an upper lower Mm -hmm. split instead of just doing random amounts of volume, adding these cool downs. Like I have him do the breathing and then walk the block afterwards, like just little shit like that goes such a long way. Um, and it kind of leads me to my next question actually is, um, I kind of look at having like a recovery hierarchy, almost like an order of importance. Like I think it starts program design. Like you can't recover well if your program's completely whacked out. But then there's kind of like an order of operations of things I like to implement to make sure that recovery is a priority. And I think a lot of people, whether we're chasing aesthetics or performance or anything, overlook recovery because they're so focused on creating the stress but if you can't recover from the stress how are you going to adapt so i just kind of want to pick your brain on your thoughts on that whole thing what you do to make sure that your athletes are recovering well so the ones that i have here locally um
1: the number one thing that i always try to hammer home to the point where i had three guys here this off season that were all living together and i would get to their house 30 minutes before and i'm making breakfast right so (laughs) if they're like that's the biggest thing, especially for these NFL players, because, you know, they may get done with the season in January, and then they're already back at OTAs right now in April. They don't want to get up at 6, 7 in the morning make breakfast before they go lift at 8 or 9 o'clock. So somebody's got to be there to do it. And then the nutrition, and you know this, especially from the aesthetic side, and, you know, even probably more from these athletes that are burning five, 6,000 calories a day. If you aren't eating and you're not sleeping, you're just you are really hindering your ability to improve or even remain the same. Um, so I always try to harp hard on the nutrition. And then within some partnerships I have here, I like to work in, I don't, you mentioned blood flow restriction earlier, mm-hmm. um, just some full occlusion, like towards the end of the workout, uh, five minutes on five minutes off. The flush is great. Um, we got the recovery boots. Uh, there's a couple cryotherapy chambers here. And I think most of our guys do a pretty good job of utilizing these tools. Uh, Sometimes you may have to, uh, you know, grab them by the shirt collar. They're trying to get out of there to go get lunch and say, hey, you know, you might want to hop on those boots for 10 minutes before you go, you know, demolish some Chipotle. You'll, you'll thank me later. (laughs) Right. Um, It doesn't within training. I think that comes from the, especially the younger guys fresh out of college, you know, they grind, 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 then they go eat and then they're to class and they grind. But some of these veterans, they they know they know the deal. They're going to spend three to four hours of their day on their craft, even more sometimes. And that, that includes their recovery. That includes their, their cryo chamber, um, their massage. We have, I got a good partner that does massage here in Nashville. I got PTs that handle the needling. So I send my guys to a PT two times a week to do any, any and everything that they really need. If they feel a little banged up here, a little banged up there, they go, they get uh, acupuncture needles, cupping, He's got BFR there pretty much anything they need to make sure that they're firing on all cylinders so that when they get back to their running
0: and their gunning, they're ready to go. I think I love everything you just said. I think it just, I mean, number one, I think the longer you do anything, the more you realize the importance of all this stuff. Right. And I think to me, and and again, I'm not working. And I want to say this because I know a lot of people work with general population that are listening to this too. Like, you need to make sure those three things that you mentioned are solidified before we recommend cryotherapy and shit like that, because if mm-hmm. proper programming isn't there, sleep's not there, nutrition's not there, those things aren't going to replace them, and I think a lot of people run to these like sexy modalities because they're like cool and they're fun, but sleep isn't right like making yep, good yep. food isn't so it's important for people to hammer those home, and I'm sure you hammer those homes with your athlete before you allow them to start adding in these other things
1: yeah, oh absolutely and uh it's starting to get to the point too where and I makes me sick at times that all these different modalities, the hydration places, the you know, the IV, the cryo, all that stuff, if you're walking out of there and you're going straight to the cryo chamber before you're getting lunch in, we we got something else to talk about, right? Um the eighty twenty or even ninety ten nutrition importance is the most important component to recovering from a thousand or fifteen hundred calorie workout. If you're not resupplying your muscles and your glycogen with fuel, then you're going to be hurting the next day. And that's where, you know, I try to follow a little bit, you know, self-imposed auto-regulation where I can, you know, I try to look in RPE scale and get to know my athletes pretty well and talk about eating sleep before each session. So I, I know where their mind's at before we even get rolling.
0: I love that, man. So many, it's, it's cool too, because there's so many, uh methods and principles and just philosophies that you're talking about that kind of match up with what we do um for general population i would just say the scale is different just because the the more closer you get to a professional athlete the more these things become important the more of these things you need to add in obviously Um, going back to like the activation and everything we talked about with that I'm curious of your entire exercise or, or focus sequencing throughout the workout. And what I mean by that is I talk a lot about this inside of like guys I train who want to build muscle or, or even fat loss, but just anybody's strength training in general is like we have that activation phase. We usually have like a strength slash compound. I usually call it like a metric based phase. So even if it is unilateral, it's something that we're trying to really push the weight on and build strength in. Then we yeah. go into like an accessory phase. And then there's kind of like a finisher, which could be different if it's, an athlete, maybe you're conditioning. If it's a, a bodybuilder, maybe we're doing like high rep lactic and metabolite training. If It's fat loss, maybe you're doing like some intervals. Um, and that's kind of how we structure our programs. But I'm curious of like, how much does that align with what you do? And how does that change when you get to a professional athlete? I think that's where, you know, we talk about a lot of these people train the
1: same way, right? So an athlete, we're going to start with, we're going to go through our activation, we're going to activate our core, movements and mobility, all that stuff. But then we're we're into the explosive stuff. So faith you know, block one is gonna be triple extension, either barbell, med ball, kettlebell, whatever it is. And then like you said, you go to block two, which maybe you don't have this with general pop, or maybe you don't have block one with general pop, but block two, more compound movement, general strength, typically bilateral, um, squats, deadlifts, you know, whatever it is, then you get into more the unilateral. With me, it's more we're loading the shit up on the unilateral. It's not. We're going to do reverse lunges for 15 body weight. We're going to load that stuff up. And then towards the end of the block, you're right. It's conditioning, we, you know, energy system development, depending on what they need. Most of these people need to be able to run and gun for 15, you know, 10 to 15 seconds, then recover for about 40. So we try to work those, you know, work to rest intervals in within our training. It's not always perfect. And we don't always want to mimic what it looks like from a football or from a hockey Or from a baseball standpoint, you want to develop multiple energy systems. That way, somebody isn't always trying to tap into that anaerobic system. We're kind of, I'm getting off track here, but it's a pet peeve of mine. If you have a football player and you only train them anaerobically over and over and over again, yet they don't have an aerobic base. Well, if you don't have an aerobic base, you're not going to be able to drop back into aerobic while you're trying to recover during a game. You're going to stay anaerobic and you're, you're cramping in the third quarter every time. So making sure that these athletes that run and gun all the time still have that aerobic base is huge for me, whether it's tempo runs or whatever, they have to be able to have that to be successful within
0: their sport. I love that, dude. I think that, and I'm not like a CrossFitter, but I think that the smart CrossFit coaches out there helped bring awareness to all the different energy systems lately. And I think that Cause for a long time it was like high intensity or nothing or it was like long distance or nothing. Right. There was no mixing modalities, mixing energy systems. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a true athlete does have multiple systems and there's purposes behind it. Even if your your general performance is more catered towards the anaerobic. Um, I a hundred percent agree with that, man. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I mean
1: for, and sometimes it takes a little bit of uh, you know, explaining to them like, why am I having to run these, you know, repeat 400s right now? You know, I'm going to throw up, coach. But it's important for building that base, right? So it's definitely very early on in the offseason. Like, we're not going to do that the last week of April before they report to OTAs. And certainly not going to do it in July before they report for training camp. But when we get them back and we're first starting to get back going, we may run some 400s with a two, maybe even three to one work-to-rest rest work to rest ratio, just so that they develop that anaerobic or that aerobic system early on
0: do you um two-part question do you undulate intensities throughout the week and then part two would be what does deloads look like and and by undulate intensities i just mean like i get a lot of people that want to lose weight or get ripped and they're doing like very high intensity work or high high volume every single day thinking more is better and I'm like, we have to like, bring you up, bring you down, bring you up, bring you down. Because if you're just going on all cylinders all the time, you're not going to like, you're just overproducing cortisol. So I'm just curious yep. of, of like how you kind of wave those intensities. And then do you implement deloads along the way? So right
1: now, um, and I say right now, I'm you know, if I were to kind of categorize a lot of my training, I kind of follow more of like a, a Cal Dietz model, um, where my blocks are split up between Different loading cycles. So I may spend more of like a triphasic approach. I may spend three to four weeks on more of an eccentric phase. Um, volume isn't incredibly high, even though it's early on in the training, because we're loading six to eight seconds. That's creating, even though we're doing six to eight reps, that's plenty of time under tension rather than muscling out 15 to 20 goblet squats, right? So I'll go from the eccentric, then I spend a ton of time. And this kind of goes back to being able to absorb force before we're actually producing force i spend four maybe five weeks if i have it on isometrics slow on the way down not near as slow as eccentric being able to control yourself at the bottom of position keeping tension and then the last phase is actually the shortest for me two to three weeks maybe on concentric weights are light weights are moving we're being explosive you're you're able to transfer all this force that we just learned to absorb stop and now we're reapplying it at a greater rate
0: damn i like that a lot do you have to because you're switching these uh the intensities in that way do you have to do load along the way or are they kind of just built in as you switch i think they're built in so this is uh this is off season
1: for most of these guys so you know we'll go to they'll go to mexico for four or five days or they go here for five or six days and i work in like planned deloads within my training because I don't. I don't travel a whole lot and I don't get out of my normal realm, but for most of my clients, general pop or athletes, the world kind of plans these deloads for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of find a way, whether they have to go to a wedding for three or four days, it kind of works its way in there. If I have somebody that's, that's here, um, I will, I try to program out, you know, 10, 12 weeks at a time, at least. Um, and if, if they stay true to it, there's going to be, within that cycle, to plan deloads. Um, and the deload may not be a full week, uh, but running intensity goes down, weight room intensity goes down. Within that, we will spend a little bit more time on our mobility, uh, on our activation, make sure that they implement maybe an extra massage during that time. And then depending on where we are uh, nutrition-wise too, that's where I like to see, is our weight down? Is our weight up? We can you know periodize our nutrition plan on that. You know, based on that deload week as well, because people, they get, they think they're not working out. They're like, Oh, well, I'm going to take a break from the eating and sleeping too. And it's actually the opposite. I want to make sure that you're getting adequate sleep, more food than normal, preparing yourself for the next phase that's coming
0: I actually really love that dude. And I see a lot of athletes and, um, we've had a lot of CrossFit competitors come to us for nutrition help more than other sports. But, um, even in the past, just people who are just interested in performing better, like kind of the weekend warrior garage warriors, I'd call them like carb cycling and things like that. And I understand the method behind it, but if you're not consuming carbohydrates and eating less calories, but you expect to perform very hard tomorrow morning, Uh that doesn't, that doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. So I'm glad you added that in. Absolutely. Um, the, the whole carb cycling thing is not, you know, not something that I typically
1: recommend for an athlete. I mean, these guys, it's hard enough just for them to, a lot of them don't count their macros. They, they're just eating, right? They're just, they're just eating and eating and eating. And that's fine. As long as they're not, you know, consuming 50% junk and 50% decent meals, you know, as long as they're eating pretty good, um, I do try to get a pretty good understanding of what they're eating, when they're eating it, and how often um biggest thing i try to look at and i talk to jason about this all the time is what's the protein like are we getting our protein because if we're getting our protein we're getting our aminos then we're going to be able to recover as long as our protein and our our carbs are in line Uh, and then we'll kind of adjust a little bit based on those numbers
0: yeah it can actually be more simple than people make it out to be one question i have kind of just uh selfishly just because you were talking about the eccentric phase the isometric phase the concentric phase i did Mm -hmm. a program fucking years ago with a bunch of guys um i i might have been still interning as a strength coach back then but it was a really fun program i liked it a lot and we did a similar thing but it was more of like a dup style daily undulated purization so we had Mm -hmm. like but a full body eccentric day, a full body isometric day, and then a full body concentric day. And we would do like six to nine seconds, de- eccentrics on the bench, the squat, um, and some kind of row. And I think it was like a T bar row chest supported. And then yep. we have the same style thing, but isometric holds. And then we had the same style thing for, um, like speed work concentric. Is that, does that have any similar benefit? Do you see value in that or would you much rather split them up in phases?
1: Uh, I think that's actually a decent way of training. I think one of the bigger guys, and I don't know if the program was derived from any things that he's done, is uh, Brandon Lilly, uh, mm-hmm. one of the better powerlifters that's been around. He kind of trained in that manner within his, I think it was his cube method or kingpin, whatever he named it. Um, Monday would be speed bench. You know, Tuesday was more volume um, deadlift. And then, you know, Wednesday was his squat day with a little bit more eccentric and hypertrophy that wasn't quite broke up like you were saying, but I think the, the principles behind it were pretty similar. And I think he, you know, it spoke volumes for him. He was extremely successful following a method very similar.
0: I like it. Um, It's just fun. Like I always tell people to like, find something that you actually, for like general population, man, like find something you have fun with, because that's what's going to keep you consistent and adhering to the plan. And I think training like an athlete is one of those ways Mm -hmm. for most people. people
1: you know, they, they see these people outside, even the ones that don't really follow the Instagram and stuff. They just, they see individuals doing these movements. And if you tell them, Hey, listen, you know, George did, you know, something very similar to this, you know, this is tailored towards you, but you know, this is your regression from his. They're like, Oh yeah. You know, NFL guys doing it. I want to do it too. And then bam, they don't, they don't care really what movements are implemented as long as they're getting results and as long as they feel good doing them. Right. So, Within exercise and training, especially from my general population standpoint, people are going to do the things that they like doing. If people don't like running, they're not going to all of a sudden become runners. So I think within training, uh, general population, if you implement enough moves that they enjoy doing, yet they're still getting results from them, you're going to be successful as a coach.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, One thing, like one last question I have for you um, on the training side of things as we kind of wrap this up is, is just your thoughts on volume, intensity and frequency and inside the hypertrophy realm. Those are like, I mean, it's like the Bible for a lot of people and, and understandably, because a lot of data for hypertrophy specifically, like you got to kind of have this equation of balancing those things out in order to stimulate maximal mm-hmm. growth. Right. But with an athlete, somebody who's chasing performance, like how much do you actually focus on that? And, and the reason I'm asking this, number one is just cause I'm curious about how you program. But number two, There is a lot of jacked athletes that Mm -hmm. do not prioritize the methods that people preach inside of bodybuilding hypertrophy. Um, And yes, there are some genetic freaks. Um, I have a a really good friend out in Alabama that owns a gym, BCI, that works with tons of NFL guys. And some of the guys, it's just like, dude, what are they drinking? Like, it's just insane. Um, But there's also the merit that these are just fucking hardworking individuals, but they don't Mm -hmm. do these same bodybuilding principles, yet they look as if they could. Um, So I'm just curious, like how how important is volume intensity and frequency for an athlete and how much of a role do you think that plays in the hypertrophy that you see in these athletes?
1: So with, you know, when you're getting these guys um, NFL guys, especially typically they're about as big as they're going to be. And I think a lot of that is when you look back at their college strength coach, we'll take George Kittle for an example, who set the all time, Reception yards for a tight end record this year. He played at Iowa, and Iowa's strength coach was literally implementing 10 by 10 back squats and 10 by 10 bench with those guys. <laughs> they were hitting heavy freaking volume. So, George, you know, he's a pretty big cat. You know, he's 250, right now, he's 258 pounds. Had he been under more of like a modern, you know, some of these modern, more functional type strength coaches, he may have came out of college closer to 235. Um, probably wouldn't have had the same volume, wouldn't have been experienced to the same things as he was in college, uh, the guy, you know, Scott Cochran there at Alabama, they implement some pretty decent volume. They squat heavy, they bench heavy, they deadlift, they do pull-ups. So those guys at Alabama, while they're most of them are those five-star genetic type freaks, right? They're being exposed to a pretty high demand and a pretty high intensity and frequency on their training. Therefore their bodies are adapting. Granted they have one of the best sports nutritionists, all that stuff that goes into it. But you put that recipe with those type of athletes and all of these guys, if you're playing football at the NFL level, you're the best, you were the best one that you knew growing up, right? So you already had the ability to become bigger, faster, stronger. And somewhere along the lines, somebody implemented something pretty good for them to help them grow.
0: Got it. I love it, man. I, I agree hundred percent. And I think a lot of that happens at such a young age too. Um, like I said, my buddy in Alabama, like I've seen pictures and I'm like, how old is that dude? 14, 15. I'm like, what? The kid's a kid's yeah, it's a monster. So I think too, like being exposed and we know that like the body is so pliable, the nervous system is so pliable at such a young age that when they're like just introduced to strength training in general in that 10 to 14 age range, it's just a game changer. You got a, a pretty good example
1: here is, uh, AJ Brown. And uh, DJ Metcalf, most recently out of Ole Miss. Um, I think Metcalf was about 6'2, 235 and literally looked like a freight train. But he was under the same strength coach as Laquan Treadwell, who came out in the first round a couple years before, who came out at 6'2, 206. But Metcalf's dad played in the NFL. There was a video out there of him squatting 135 at like age nine. Um, He's been lifting this way for a long, long time. So, you know, his his base was much greater than even some of those guys that go to Ole Miss as five stars. And he just grew upon it.
0: Right. I love it, man. You've given so much information, man. We might have to do this again. Cause I could, I think I could just keep going and picking your brain for another hour on this stuff. Um, dude, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing everything before we go. I have one personality question and then I want to make sure you, uh, drop all your, your Instagram, your website, anything that you have to share so people can kind of follow you and get some more information from you. But the personality question is a situation and, the situation is that you are at a dinner table and you have three empty seats in front of you and you can choose okay. anybody to eat that dinner with you dead or alive, but they cannot be friends or family who's sitting with three, you at that table. Three,
1: three seats. Okay. Let's uh one is going to be Jessica Biel. Um, you know, I just, you know, I'd love to see her in person Two, um Ben Bruno. I would love to, just interact with that guy mm-hmm. for you know an hour and then three uh let's see here i don't know like mm, john f kennedy somebody that has been like so influential in america for what it is um and that has stories that only somebody like that could ever tell and we all have our own stories right but that's somebody that is going to be known to everybody for eternity so i think somebody like
0: that would be pretty cool dude i love it that's a great dinner table (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: yeah i mean i that was kind of on the spot but uh definitely uh, jessica biel would be my first invite
0: (laughs) (laughs) i can't blame you man so dude uh give everybody your handles like uh instagram you put out a lot of good content i want everybody to be able to follow you there if you have a website anything information like that please drop it now so they can go go check it out
1: yeah. So Instagram is Jay Cuthbert, uh, underscore training. Um, website is alpha one training.com. And then, um, this is bad. I don't hardly use Twitter a whole lot, so I can't remember my Twitter name, but <laughs> my biggest handle is, uh, you know, the, the Instagram and most of my online training and everything runs through there. So check it out and we'll, uh, upload
0: the podcast on there. Once it gets up. Perfect, man. I'm going to drop all that in the show notes. So everybody can grab it. And dude, once again, thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.